You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. It is the fourth Sunday, I believe, of Lent, and um, I think it's the third Sunday of, of Women's History Month. And going with our theme here today, I want to talk about that. Um, I thought that because we're doing a, a Lenten series here on the sufferings of God in Christ, I thought we should look at how God's sufferings in the world, in Christ, were uniquely expressed through what some call the divine feminine. And for this talk, I'm going to be taking my cues from the scholarship of women theologians, like Marika Rose, Christina Cleveland, who, by the way, is the author of the book we did in book club last year, God is a Black Woman, Heather Riggs, and uh, Ala Renee Bosworth. Last week, we talked about how Jesus was forsaken and abandoned by all at the cross. He even felt abandoned by God himself as he cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And yet a closer look at the Gospels reveals that Jesus wasn't totally abandoned at the cross, actually. Because some of Jesus' female followers were present, we're told. Or at least were watching from afar. These women were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Salome, and perhaps some others. Um, the Gospels differ greatly about which women were present and exactly <laughs> how present they were. We're told that they might have been some ways off at a safe distance watching, but nevertheless, they were there in some capacity. This is an important point, and it raises a question, I think. What about Jesus' sufferings did women uniquely get and identify with? Remember, it was women who went to the tomb after Jesus was buried in order to anoint his body, prepare him for burial, for decay. It was them who initially reported the resurrection to the male disciples. What, what does the presence of women throughout Jesus' life, the presence with him and his sufferings, and his understanding of their sufferings and solidarity with them, what does this mean? I think one of the things it reveals or challenges is our conceptions of power. Last week we talked about how the sufferings and the crucifixion of Christ reveals a God who is not all-powerful in the world. I believe that the sufferings and the crucifixion of Christ reveals that God is not all-powerful. Not in the way that we often define all-powerful. And this week's talk is a continuation of that theme. However, it's, it's really about a shift in the way that we understand God's power in the world through what we call the sacred feminine or the divine feminine. I have a friend and, and colleague in ministry named Heather Riggs. She is a Methodist minister. She points out that the church's discomfort with the perceived weakness and powerlessness of God revealed in the suffering and crucified Christ, is rooted in our patriarchal worldview. 
and our patriarchal definitions of power and weakness. I think, in other words, she's saying that when we think of power and strength, we think of it from this kind of male-centric point of view. She maintains that women uniquely understand that suffering has never been a sign of weakness. Suffering has never been a sign of weakness and powerlessness, but rather suffering is often a sign of true strength and power, she says. This is because, and I'm quoting her here, any woman who has given birth will tell you that enduring suffering is not weakness, but suffering is sometimes just the transition into new life. Furthermore, any non-white, non-straight, non-male person can tell you that choosing to live your truth when people are actively punishing you for it takes real strength and real power. And didn't Jesus do just that, she says, on the cross? Jesus knew they were coming for him. And what did he do? He didn't raise an army. He didn't storm Pilate's palace or the temple or otherwise foment insurrection. Rather, he chose to stand firm in his values to the bitter end. End quote. That's real power. That's real strength. In other words, so much of the way that we understand words and concepts like power and strength is informed by a patriarchal culture that defines those terms as the ability to overpower, to overcome, to dominate, to control, to conquer. These kind of male-centric <laughs> views of power. But if we understand God and power from a feminine perspective, then suddenly our conception of strength change. I think Christina Cleveland's work would be really helpful here. Again, Dr. Cleveland is the author of God's Black Woman, a book that we covered in book club here last year. She basically she basically ended up in her work. She just goes in two dots. She calls one the white man. She drags just simply the domestic feminine. The white male god comes out of Europe. Comes out of the European Enlightenment. In colonialism, but it's also rooted in the patriarchal worldview of the ancient Near East. But in general, the white male God, the way that we've inherited that God in the church today, comes out of the European Enlightenment, European colonialism, and European Christendom, which since its inception in the early Middle Ages has been run entirely by men. And therefore, European Christendom reflects a very male-centric and a very hierarchical worldview. The white male God, therefore, is obsessed with control, domination, authority, hierarchy, power, power to control. This is a God concerned with, again, preserving social hierarchies with white Christian straight men at the top of society and the church and everyone else in various rungs below. The white male God defines power and strength 
as the ability to exert control over others, theologically and socially. The white male God defines power and strength as institutions, the ability to exert control over an institution, control the culture, control the environment, to dominate, to exploit. And this God is on perfect display today. In another book we read last year, Jesus and John Wayne. How many of you read or looked at Jesus and John Wayne? Good. Written by Kristen Cobe Dumez. And she brings a critique of power in that book as well, a critique of patriarchal power. Kristen Cobes Dumez argues that for many Christians, past and present, God is like John Wayne, right? He's this kind of alpha male, big shot, you know, swagger, the whole bit, a real man's man, a man of real power, real might, someone that'll knock your teeth out. This God is certainly not a suffering and afflicted God, is he? John Wayne is not an image of servanthood or a suffering and afflicted God who stands in solidarity with the poor and the powerless and is himself exploited and abused by the powers that be. But that is the God revealed in Christ. The sacred black feminine, according to Dr. Cleveland, is the opposite of the John Wayne God and the white male God that we've inherited. To describe God in the terms of the sacred black feminine or simply the divine feminine is to say that God is a God of love and a God of justice who stands in solidarity with the poor and the powerless, just as black folk and black women in particular have historically been the poor and the powerless in our society and the ones who were oppressed. Dr. Cleveland argues that the sacred black feminine symbolizes vulnerability and precariousness. And this vulnerability and precariousness extends into every aspect of our faith and theology, not just into social matters, but theological ones too. This means that being people of the sacred black feminine or being people of the divine feminine means embracing uncertainty. Embracing our precariousness in the world with regards to God. Embracing uncertainty, embracing unknowing, embracing change, embracing novelty, embracing plurality, embracing questions about God and faith and religion, and not being afraid of those questions, that vulnerability, that precariousness, and finding in essence, a kind of divine presence in the midst of that vulnerability and that uncertainty and that precariousness. That's where we find God in the world. It's about a radical openness to unknowing and doubt and seeing this as a sign of courage and strength. There's a kind of real power, real strength in one's ability to embrace unknowing and uncertainty. Whereas the white male God sees uncertainty in what one believes or the embrace of doubt and unknowing in our faith, the white male God sees that as a sign of weakness. Right? Many of us grew up in a church that would hear, you know, things like atheism for Lent, what we're doing right now is it's a sign of weakness. You're supposed to know what you believe and believe what you know. And 
Believe, believe, believe. No questions, no doubt. It's weakness. Basically, the white male God is a God of fundamentalism and the sacred black feminine or the divine feminine is a God of mysticism, to put it in one sentence. It's a loaded sentence. A great example of Jesus embodying or embracing what we're calling today the sacred black feminine or the divine feminine, and there are many examples in the Gospels of Jesus doing this, but one that I really like is him healing the woman with the issue of blood. And let me just read that story to you now in Luke chapter 8. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? Everybody denied it. Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and press in on you. And you're asking, who touched me? Everybody's touching, in other words. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, daughter, I love how he says it like this, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In order to understand the meaning of this story, one must understand something about ancient Hebrew culture or ancient Jewish culture. This woman was considered ritually unclean because of what was written in Leviticus 15, which states that when a woman has her monthly bleeding, she will be considered impure for seven days, and whoever touches her shall also be considered unclean. She must therefore remove herself from the community for a period of time. Now, this particular woman in question had been bleeding for 12 years. This means that for 12 years, she was considered persona non grata, a pariah. She was considered unclean and untouchable and had to remain on the margins of society. Can you imagine her trauma, her suffering? And yet by touching Jesus here, even the hem of his garment, the law said that he too now was unclean because she touched him. Jesus, of course, disregards all that nonsense, even though it's written in the Bible. He disregards all that nonsense, and in so doing, not only heals her, but identifies with her and her suffering by taking upon himself the same unclean status she supposedly had in the eyes of the religious law. Now, a quick aside. I like to read all of Jesus's miracles as metaphors for a deeper kind of spiritual event taking place in people's lives. And this story is no exception. When I read stories about the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the dead rising, etc., I don't read those stories anymore as being 
about literal physical healings, but about literal spiritual events taking place in the hearts and minds of the people involved who are experiencing the liberating and life-giving message and ministry of Jesus. Their eyes were opened. Their ears were opened. They were healed. They were liberated. They were given new life, literally, spiritually speaking. That's how I read it. And this story of the woman with the issue of blood is no exception. I think on a deeper level, Jesus healing her was symbolic of him identifying with and healing or liberating all those who are suffering under the weight of religious oppression, just as she was. All those who suffer under these religious laws and religious institutions and religious leaders that dehumanize people because of who they are, because of their race, religion, gender, sexuality, and class. The God revealed in Jesus was antithetical to that oppressive understanding of God. That's what I think this story is about. But I think this story is also about how God is revealed in the form of the divine feminine. Not only because this was a woman Jesus healed, but because by being touched by her, he was connected to her on a deeper level. Again, the religious law of his day, of his religion, Jesus was a Jew. The religious law said that he was made just as unclean as she was by being touched by her. But Jesus wasn't made unclean. He was actually made purer and holier by being touched by her. Because she revealed in him the true nature of God. By touching him, she revealed that God was not a God of religious law, oppressive religious rules. But God is a God of love pure love, a God of liberation. By touching him, she revealed that God was a God who stands with the broken, the oppressed, and the suffering, and especially with suffering women on the margins of their society. By touching him, she revealed all that. She revealed the divine feminine, we would say in Jesus of Nazareth, the divine feminine of God. Another great example of this in the Gospels is the genealogy of Jesus. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, in Jesus's genealogy, there are five and only five women present among the 50 or so men, because again, that was a patriarchal society. But it's fascinating that five women are mentioned here. And these five women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course, Mary the mother of Jesus. And these women all share something in common. They are all women of questionable purity, according to religious law. They are foreigners, idolaters, sex workers. And in Mary's case, an unwed pregnant teenager. And yet they all are Jesus's kin, his mothers. They are the mothers of God. And because of this, they disrupt, they subvert the dominant first century patriarchal Jewish understanding of God and what it meant to be his people. According to the author Marika Rose, she writes this, these women represent Israel's failure 
in scare quotes, Israel's failure to be racially, religiously, and sexually pure. And yet all are not despite this, but because of, because of this, righteous and heroic figures. These women, all in different ways, ensure the continuation of Israel and its identity of the people of God, end quote. In other words, these women deconstruct, we would say, they deconstruct pur the purity culture of their day. They deconstruct any notion that God has to play by certain religious rules or that God is contained or revealed solely within the neat confines of a particular religious tradition. God transcends all that, subverts it, disrupts it, deconstructs it. The God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth defied the religious imagination of his day. He defied it constantly. He broke the religious rules constantly. He broke their theological presuppositions about who God is in order to set them free, in order to, in order to expand their consciousness, expand their minds. The God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is incomprehensible to the rigid religious mind. Not just the first century Jewish rigid religious mind, but anyone who tries to domesticate, define, or contain God in a particular religion or theology. In this way, the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth embodies the sacred divine feminine. He embodies it completely in all of its vulnerability, all of its suffering, and all of its subversive power, subversive to the powers of this world. As we turn towards communion this, this morning, I want to read you a short poem that I've, I've shared before. It's written by uh, Ella Renee Bosworth, and she is, she is an ordained Episcopal priest and poet theologian. And she wrote this piece of communion liturgy as a meditation on Mary's sufferings, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and her act of self-giving and how her act of self-giving was really a precursor to Jesus's act of self-giving and his suffering. Her suffering was a precursor to his suffering. And in many ways, her suffering and self-giving was equal to his. For without her suffering and self-giving, there would be no Jesus. God would not have been born in the world. In other words, God depends upon the divine feminine. And his power, her power, is perhaps best understood in the divine feminine and in the sufferings of women who give life to the world around us in a myriad of ways. With all that in mind, let's hear this poem now as a communion meditation. Before Jesus was his mother, before his cry on the cross, her cry in the manger, before his offering, her offering, before the breaking of bread and death, the extending of her body in birth, before the offering of the cup, the offering of her breast, before his blood, her blood, and by her body and blood, his body and blood, 
The three wise men knelt to hear the woman's word and wonder. Holding up her sacred child, she said, receive and let your hearts be healed and your lives be filled with love. For this is my body and this is my blood. Here at Central, we serve each other the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Um, the way you do it is you take one of these gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the chalice and you receive it. That's just grape juice. But we do it like this in order to reinforce that we are to be and we are to bring the body of Christ to each other. This table is open to all who wish to partake. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So if you're new here to Central, at the end of um, my talk every week, we open it up for discussion, um, comments, questions, complaints, <laughs> anything goes really. Um, and so if you're even joining us via Zoom, you can unmute and raise your voice that way. Um, I sit there uh, while Max plays the communion music and I try to think up like a discussion question to stimulate conversation sometimes. Um, but yeah, I always want to also say, you know, please limit your comments to a minute or less. But um, with that, does anybody have a question or a comment about anything today? Yeah, Leanne. Thanks. I really enjoyed that talk and really connect with the way you're viewing those stories of Jesus. And the one comment I would make was I love that it says that power went out from him into her. And I think that like, you know, whether you think that literally happened or don't or whichever, whatever your thought is on it, I think there's such a great message to take from that of like what it is to have power come out, like leave you and go to another person and endow it on another person. Just thinking about specifically this month with it being, I guess, women's month. <laughs> sure. Um, it's women's month. Um, just like, what does it look like for for men to have power in some sense go out from them towards people of other genders? And I think obviously some people do that very well, but I think there are a lot of folks where that is not even on the table. So I just think that that one line and that story, just even that is so resonant and pertinent. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, can you pass it back to Jen? So I think another interesting parallel that can be made <clears throat> with that story that I didn't really think of before is um, like with women's health, because just to clarify this issue, it wasn't coming from like a sore on her arm. It was as if she was having a continuous period for 12 years. 
right? So, and she saw these doctors that couldn't do anything. And they probably, I could, we can only imagine what they told her. It's in your head. It's a curse. You did something wrong, whatever it may be. Like those things still happen today when a woman can be in pain or have complications. You, you, something is wrong and doctors are just telling her that it's in your head or we don't know what it is or try this other medication or her pain just isn't taken seriously. Um, like really quickly, just for example, there's while during pregnancy, you can be so morning sick for so long that you lose weight, you end up in the hospital. And traditionally that was viewed as the woman subconsciously not wanting her pregnancy and her body physically trying to get rid of it. That's how doctors viewed it. So they'd put these women in like dark rooms in hospitals to try to convince them, no, you want this pregnancy. <laughs> um, and there's new research that's finding out, oh, it might be genetic actually. So, <laughs> so I think that story specifically can have a, a parallel or a, an application in Jesus really affirming her pain, which I'm, cause I'm sure there was pain, her problem and saying, yeah, you're right. It's not in your head. You know, I affirm your problem, your health issue, and I'm going to make it right. You know? So that was just the thought I had. Yeah. Really good point. Thank you for that point of view. You know, I also want to just make it clear briefly that, <clears throat> you know, structuring our talk today and specifically locating God in the divine feminine functions as a, um, a critique of the male-centric way that we've been taught to think of God. But, you know, one could take that too far, too, and be like, oh, I'm identifying God. I'm gendering God. God is a woman. Well, no, I'm not, because I think God transcends things like gender, right? And these these bodies. But I think it's important to use this kind of language to critique power and to demonstrate how Jesus himself embodied that critique of power and subverted it for the cause of love and justice. And so when I speak of God in terms of the feminine, I don't want it to be perceived as any kind of like hyper-literalized understanding. Does it? Does that make sense? Um, it's about, you know, embracing <clears throat> those virtues we're talking about love, justice, the critique of power for the sake of liberation. Um, does that make sense? Anybody want to respond to that or? Yeah. Um, okay, Marsha. Yeah, go ahead. I know you don't like to use the mic. I'll get this one back from you, Jen. I'm, I'm glad that you took a moment to put balance and harmony in what you're presenting today, because I agree that God embodies both. And the issue I think is that God and Jesus knew how to make harmony as well as challenge. And if he didn't have strength that might be seen as masculine, he wouldn't have had the courage to go against the priests and everyone. And if he didn't have the feminine side, he wouldn't have understood all the people he tried to help and did help. Thank you. Other thoughts today? 
Okay, good stuff. We can end a little bit early, I guess. That's cool. Um, but yeah, next week will be um, the final week in my series on the sufferings of God. And then the next week is Palm Sunday. And I believe Mr. Feckety there shall be speaking as I will be uh, on spring break with my kids. I will be back here for Easter. But um, yeah, next week also, if you are up for it, stick around after service. We will go do a little service project out here in Burchett and clean up uh, the sidewalk and the kind of the apron of the street um, as a kind of community service project for 45 minutes. And kids, it's a great opportunity uh, for kids to join us. Uh, everybody can have gloves. I think we've got gloves. <laughs> Bring your own uh, for little hands. But otherwise, let us conclude our time together with our benediction here. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves <clears throat> to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. God bless you. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.